Daryl. <laughs> yes. Welcome. So um, I actually invited you to, to come to the meeting in January of last year, and you very graciously agreed to come, and of course we had to cancel. Um, and then uh, I invited you back again for January of this year, and you very graciously agreed to come, uh, but we had to postpone. And uh, so it's third time lucky, and thank you so much for, for your persistence. <laughs> no problem. I'm uh, excited to be here. <laughs> So, one thing you have to know about the business owner uh, investors is that they're a tough bunch. And um, I was, um, uh, you know, so typically when I meet with them, they want to hear about where I invested in. And um, a few years ago, there was a lady, um, and I explained to her that we're invested in a pet insurance company. And she asked me a little bit about what pet insurance was, and she was looking kind of confused. And then she said, yeah, but why wouldn't you just buy a new dog if it gets sick? <laughs> now, I won't say where she's from because it would be very unfair to my South African friends. <laughs> um, no, so, to, but having said that, I should also say there's a different reaction, which I also get sometimes is to people, it's completely clear uh, why you have pet insurance. Um, you know, it's, um, it's not even a topic that if your dog was sick that they would spend a lot of money on it. So, but maybe you can start us off by saying from your perspective, what, the, what is the problem you're solving for people? What is the reason uh, for pet insurance? Well, um, for about half of humanity, uh, we live with pets. Uh, and at least half of those people, so one in four people, the pet is um, a big part of the family. Um, and for many people, um, and maybe it's not quite as high as their children, but it is very close. Um, in some cases, it's higher than their spouse. Um, we know that the pets give us unconditional love, and it's hard for humanity to give us unconditional love every day. I know that when I show up late from work and get home, my wife is often mad at me, but my dogs are happier to see me. Um, so for, you know, for that percentage of, of, of the world, um, it's very, very difficult for people to budget if and when they're sick, the pet becomes sick or injured, or how much that's going to be. Um, you know, and you know, a, the simple math of, of this equation is, if I was to say a golden retriever, a common breed uh, in the United States. Uh, and if you came into a veterinarian and you said, I have a golden retriever, it's a puppy, how much should I budget over their entire life? Um, first of all, it would be very difficult for somebody to know the answer to that. Uh, fortunately, we do. Um, and I'm going to make up the number, but give you an example. Let's say it's $10,000 is the average over the pet's entire life that they're going to need to spend on veterinary care. But the difficult part is it ranges between a lucky and an unlucky one. And an unlucky one might be $60,000, and a lucky one might be 1000 And with such a wide variety, it's very difficult for people to budget. So our goal is to make it easier for people to budget. We understand what it is. We put a small margin on top of it. And then regardless where the pet lies and being lucky or unlucky, we're there for them 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the life of the pet. Yeah. Just to give people a sense, how big can a vet bill become if a dog is really sick? Um, $30,000, $40,000 is something that we pay daily. Uh, like, uh, 
So uh, five and ten thousand dollars is happening um, thousands of times per day, um, and you know fifty, sixty thousand um, dollars is it happens more than people think. If you um, uh, to run a veterinary hospital, uh, the equipment that you need. Uh, and everything you need is the same as you do for a human. It's the same equipment, the same costs, uh, and yet when people, often people don't know what the cost of human care is, mm. but if a, a human being has had surgery and then needs to stay in the hospital for five or six days, um, you know, that could be $100,000. Um, and for a pet, Veterinarians don't charge as much as they need to, but for a pet, that could be $45,000. Yeah, and, you know, sadly, if, if people uh, can't afford those bills, then, you know, the dog is euthanized, right? Uh, yeah, very, um, I mean, it's too frequently that, um, that that happens. And if you, you start to interchange your pet with the word your child, um, it becomes pretty obvious why we're solving a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going back a little bit, um, what I always love to hear when I have the opportunity to speak to entrepreneur is the origin story. So where did the idea come from? How did you get started? So I'm, uh, today I'm 52 years old, uh, born and raised in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, and when I was about their age over here, um, I went to a vet hospital on the weekend uh, with my parents. We had our two-year-old dog, and our dog wasn't feeling very good, so I went with my, my mother and father and our dog, and we were waiting in the waiting room, and the veterinarian came out to us and said, um, they had a mask on, like some of us in the room today, kind of came out without their mask, and they said, uh, um, we know what's wrong with your dog. Um, the good news is we're going to be able to solve it. It's a pretty simple surgery, um, and it, it's quite common. Uh, and your dog's going to live another 12 or 14 years after. And the veterinarian was very relieved. Um, and what had happened is the dog's stomach had twisted, um, which is quite common for the breed of dog that we had. It was a standard poodle. Um, but my parents uh, didn't have the money. They said how much it was for the surgery, and my parents, they couldn't afford it. So we left that day without our dog, um, and it was a horrible experience for everybody involved. Uh, you know, I'm a, a, a teenager and I've just lost my, uh, you know, my, 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 my buddy, my family friend. Um, uh, I saw the despair on the veterinarians and their staff who spent their entire life trying to uh, be able to fix and help pets. Uh, and they were devastated. Uh, my parents didn't only lose their own pet, but they were deeply embarrassed that in front of their son, they weren't able to budget and prepare for it. Um, so it stuck with me, and um, roughly 14 years later, I started trepanning. What were some of the big milestones? What, how did you get started, and you know, uh, what was the journey? Um, well, I... Uh, I graduated college at a very early age. I graduated at 19 um, with a 
a major in advanced technology marketing, which basically was like selling stuff with blinking lights. Um, and I spent about um, four or five years of my life wearing suits, um, selling to the cellular industry in the early 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, you don't have time for the whole story, but uh, eventually I, I left that and um, I decided that I wanted to do something bigger in my life. Um, and I wanted to start Trupanion, and I didn't have uh, the money to do it. Uh, so I used a $5,000 credit card, and I started a cigar business. Um, my dog was with me. Monty was with me every day at the cigar business, kind of reminding me, don't forget to do Trupanion. Uh, and I built and sold that business, sold it for half a million dollars, and then took that money and started the Trupanion um, about 23 years ago. Yeah, and the first policy you wrote was for Monty, right? That's right. <laughs> What, what, was some, what was some of the biggest challenges of, I mean, insurance to me, I mean, like if you want to start a coffee shop or I know a car dealership or, or something like that, I, I can see a path to that, but insurance sounds like difficult and regulated. How, how on earth do you, do you start that? Um, well, it was hard. Uh, I think being blindly naive helped. Um, um, there's, there was many people that said, listen, this is a heavy lit regulated. And I just said, I don't care. I mean, there's a problem to be solved. We should be able to fix it. The people that were in the market trying to do it weren't doing it very well. Um, and, um, you know, I just asked a lot of people for help. And um, uh, eventually, over a long period of time, uh, and a lot of no's and a lot of rejections. People eventually said uh, yes. There's a gentleman named Ross Totten um, who was a big help uh, in getting things going in Canada. And his wife, Joan Totten, uh, loved her cats. Um, and probably if Joan Totten didn't have those cats, I, it probably may have not worked out. Uh, but yeah, just getting help from people. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned, I mean, wh why is this uh, something that nobody else has really done? I mean, I remember when we, we got our dog um, uh, seven years ago here in Switzerland, one of the first things my wife said to me was, you know, we should get insurance. But the reality is, uh, in Switzerland, uh, there is no pet insurance. I mean, there's people willing to sell you a policy, but it's not a policy that really works. Um, why, why was no one really addressing this? And, well, we'll talk about the Switzerland problem uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit later. But... Uh, If you, a, a gentleman was talking to me over here and he said, you know, uh, he talked about uh, Trupanion having a big opportunity. Um, and an opportunity might be spelled by some people by saying, this is a, way, a place to make money. Um, and I never started the company to make money. Uh, I started the company to solve a problem. Um, and uh, if you solve a problem well, it needs to be economically viable for it to be sustainable. Um, if we're going to be able to impact uh, tens of millions of pets, which we will do, um, it needs to be economically viable. Um, 
but it's not the starting point. And most people that are in insurance, if they're thinking about getting into this, are thinking about how to make money. Uh, and I just think it's a wrong, it's a wrong starting point. I mean, do we want to make money off of our children's health? I don't know. Not how I want to spend my day. Um, you know, um, so I think it's just the, the orientation. Um, I think it's, it makes a difference. I mean, we, we, we ring a bell when we pay a $10,000 invoice. We get excited because we know that the bigger the invoice that we paid, the more excited we are that we know that we made an impact. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a, a different point of view. So you mentioned uh, market opportunity. Um, how big do you think the market is and, and, and how much of that market over time do you think you can serve? Um, which market are you talking about? Well, pets, uh, dogs and cats in, in North America. In North America? Yeah. Well, let's start with North America and then we can, we can talk about outside North America. Um, well, there's about 200 million cats and dogs in North America. And, um, Against a population of around, what, 300 million? Or? Yeah. 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 So, so about 300 million humans, about 200 million cats and dogs, um, uh, about one in two households have a pet, and the average household has 1.4 pets. Um, uh, so about 50 million there yeah. uh, in, in Canada and the United States. Um, and, you know, uh, we will be... Uh, in increasing our addressable market by expanding, uh, doubling that size at least um, to other places in the world. Um, and uh, so I think our addressable market, I'm not saying we'll get all 100 million, but in the markets that we're addressing over time, 100 million pets. Yeah. This, what presumably not everyone um, is in the market for, for, for insurance. So what of, of those sort of uh, those pets, how many do you think, not necessarily with Trupanion with one of your competitors, but how many do you think would over time get uh, insurance? The 100 million. So yeah, I mean, if you look at it, let's just focus on North America. Two, there's 200 million uh, pets. Um, as I opened up, uh, it's about one in four pet owners who really think about their pet as a part, that, a part of their family. You know, they're sleeping on the beds or on the sofas with them. They're on their uh, Christmas cards or uh, they're uh, at that level. Um, you know, maybe you had somebody that was from some country at some point that may have had a pet but thought of them more of, as a farm animal that they're replaceable. Um, and then there's people that don't have them at all. But um, yeah, one, one in four pet owners, or sorry, yeah, pet owners, one in four. Um, yeah, and just to give some context around that, today you're at around 600,000 pets that you insure? Uh, yeah, on a, the Trupanion, it's about 600,000. We have a little bit more on With some other brand. brands and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's a big market opportunity. I don't think anyone doubts that. If there's a question mark, it's on around the unit economics of the business. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you see those. Uh, so we um, we understand what the average cost is. 
let's say it was $10,000 for a golden retriever. Uh, we add a margin on top of it. Our margin uh, is about a 28 or 29% margin uh, on top of it. So we would charge, let's make it easier and say 30% on top of it. So we would charge $13,000 over the pet's life. Um, and we would break that into monthly payments and the pet owner would pay that over their life. It does adjust with inflation year after year, so it's not a static number. Um, so like on average, I think $50, $60 a month would be the... Today, uh, we're averaging about $65 a month. When I started the company, we uh, were about $20 a month. So there is a lot of inflation in veterinary medicine. Um, and with that margin, about half of it uh, is used for us to be able to be there for the pet 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It includes credit card processing fees, paying accountants, lawyers, and everything else we need to do it. And we end up with about a 15% margin. So um, with that 15% margin, um, I think it's a good value proposition for the pet owner because they don't know if their pet's going to be average or not. So you're basically paying a small premium to us a 30% premium to uh, have that have benefit. certainty that under all circumstances you can pay for the care. Yeah. Um, and so if I uh, get a pet enrolled and I make $1,500 off of every pet I enroll, uh, those unit economics seem pretty good as long as it doesn't cost me $1,500 to enroll them. Um, and if I'm spending $300 to enroll a pet and I get $1,500 back over their life, I think those unit economics are pretty simple. <laughs> So we have a large market opportunity. We have attractive unit economics that typically attracts competition. Mm -hmm. So why, you know, and there's some very large successful insurance companies out there, and I think of Geico, some of the large guys, um, some specialist players. How come they can't um, eat your lunch? Um, you know, it's hard for me to say that somebody can't do something in the future. Um, but I mean, I've competed against now over 60 brands. Um, and with people that had companies that had, um, you know, not 100 times more our size, but 10,000 and 100,000 times more our size and money than we've had. Um, I think there was once a, a joint venture between Berkshire Hathaway and Nestle or something there's, like that. There's been a lot. There's, there's been some, <laughs> some uh, big companies. Um, to imagine a more powerful combination than that. Uh, at the end of the day, um, this is all we do. Um, we're vertically integrated. Uh, we're trying to be as efficient as we can. We're trying to be the low-cost operator so that we can give as much back to the pet owner. Right now, I told you we're targeting... Um, uh, about a 28 or 29% margin. Our goal in the future is to target a 25% margin. Um, and, and we'll do that by eliminating more frictional costs. We're going to keep our 15% profit margin, but every, every dollar we save above that goes back to the pet owner. So kind of think of like a Costco model. Um, I was going to say that reminds me of another company in Seattle. Yeah. Um, the other part that is interesting is um, we have, uh, we're the only company that has people visiting veterinarians on a regular basis. 
So uh, we, they're called territory partners for us, and they're visiting a veterinarian on a regular basis. And if, um, let's say, uh, some other brand runs a Super Bowl ad or a TV ad, and they get a pet enrolled, uh, and then when that pet becomes sick or injured, they go to the veterinarian, and the pet owner has to pay out of pocket, fill out a bunch of paperwork, the experience is difficult and hard, um, the likelihood of that person staying or telling their friends is low. Uh, whereas we have relationships with veterinarians so that when a Trupanion pet walks into the door, uh, that client's gonna get as good of an experience as possible. And the, the reasons that a veterinarian likes and support us um, are unique to us. One is we have the highest value proposition. Number two is we're covering the most that we can possibly cover. And number three, we go are designed to be able to pay a hospital directly um, in under five minutes. Um, so the pet owner doesn't need to be out of pocket. And our relationship with the veterinarian, we have now to date made over two million face-to-face -face visits with veterinarians. GEICO hasn't made any visits. They haven't built those relationships. Uh, and if they were to start, um, I don't think they have a compelling pitch. Um, I don't think they're going to say, oh, we're willing to um, pay out 85 cents on the dollar. Uh, the unit economics don't work. Um, the people in our, that are dealing with our claims are not transportable. It's the same person who does an auto claim can't, you know, everybody that does ours have worked in vet hospitals for years. So what we have is, is unique. It's I'm not saying it can't be copied, but it's not easy to copy. And one of the things that uh, has influenced me as an investor and which I talked about in my letter this year was the way, you know, we investors are, are looking for, you know, competitive advantage and entry barriers when we look at companies. And, you know, as, as many of you know, entry barriers are, are brands and network effects and that kind of stuff. And, you know, Trupanion for sure has uh, a strong brand and, and other uh, competitive advantages. What's always impressed me is the attention you guys pay to just improving the business day after day after day. Um, maybe you can give some examples of that. Um, I'm thinking maybe around conversion or uh, installing I, the software, you know, I, I think take the, I it think, where you want to go. Yeah, I mean, I think the most... Um, uh, the best way to think about our business is uh, people pay us monthly. They can cancel any month they want. So we're, we're a monthly recurring revenue business. And literally every month we start the same place. How many pets are we going to enroll this month? How many pets are going to get sick? How many invoices are we going to pay? How many pets are going to cancel? How many pets are we going to end up at the end? Um, and that retention rate... Um, uh, for Trupanion, uh, when we first went uh, public uh, in 2014, was about 98.5% per month. So about 98.5% of people kept it per month. Uh, and today, um, we're about 98.7% per month. Um, that incremental improvement from going from 98.5 to 98.7 has meant that our stream of cash flow that, that a pet stays with us has increased by over two and a half years. 
um, which means we can spend more money to acquire a pet. Um, and the incremental effort it takes to have, we already had the best retention rates in the world in our category, um, but it's on every telephone phone call, it's on every time we communicate, it's every time we pay a hospital directly, um, and it's monitoring and managing it in a very small way. So, you know, incremental improvements. And in a, in a spreadsheet, uh, a move from 98.5 to 98.7 from the perspective of an investor looks like a, like a small rounding error, but that's what you guys uh, work on every day, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a difference between going from... Uh, you know, roughly uh, 58 months to 80 months, a pet, the average pet stays with us. And then at the end of it, people say, oh, well, this is a great business because look how sticky the customers are. But <laughs> the customers are sticky because you do a great job, not because, <laughs> because of a brand or a moat or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's... Uh, I mean, they stay with us because we have the relationships with the veterinarians. They stay with us because we're paying the veterinarians directly. Um, the reason the veterinarians allowed that is because for years we've been visiting them, telling them why we offer value. I mean, so it's not something, it's an, uh, I read your letter as well. Moats are not a decision. Uh, by definition, a moat is very, very difficult to copy. Uh, to copy our moat would take somebody 15 years. I mean, it took us 22. So, I mean, they could take our footprint and say, I'm going to copy what they did, but you can't, you can't do it in a year. It's, yeah. it's not possible. I couldn't do it in a year. I could maybe do, I could replicate what Trupanion's done probably in 15 years if I had a, a, to start from scratch. So, up until 2020, the focus of the business was primarily on... Trupanion Pet Insurance North America. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a year ago, you and your team published a, a 60 month plan mm -hmm. um, with um, a number of much more ambitious goals outside of North America and in different markets. Maybe you could talk about some of those opportunities you see, you know, the ones you're most excited about. Well, one of my jobs. Um, at the company is to make sure that I make it easier for the team to be successful. Um, and if you're reliant on one, one area, some people think that's going to uh, drive better focus. Um, but I would tell you that it also... Um, creates a lot less opportunity for new people in the company. Um, and it creates um, a fair amount of stress. So uh, in 2005, we were adding stores, adding vet hospitals recommending us. And I did not know how to increase same-store sales. I couldn't figure out how to get them to recommend us more frequently. But I could get them to recommend us. Uh, and our average same-store sales was one new pet per vet hospital per month. And I knew I could get that better, but I didn't know how yet. So, How many pets would typically register? Uh, how many uh, new puppies would come in a month typically? Uh, so to an average vet hospital, we would have about 30 opportunities, yeah. uh, 30 new puppies and kittens, and we were getting one. Yeah, so uh, one in 30. Um, so 
In 2005, I said, let's add, um, let's make it easier for us. So we expanded from Canada to the United States. Canada had roughly 3,000 vet hospitals and the U.S. had another 23,000. So we didn't have to learn a new trick. But it didn't mean that I didn't want to improve same-store sales. It meant that now we had two levers to grow from. Um, and at any given time, maybe my new stores could slow down or we could have a hiccup or a challenge. But if my same-store sales was increasing, they would do it. So I had two growth levers. Um, and what we've done now with our 60-month plan is we've added about another five levers. Um, we've added it by adding some new uh, products and channels. Um, we've added it by adding new geographies. And um, that means for a company that is trying to, you know, I'm trying to grow intrinsic value 20 to 25% every year. Increase the value of the company by that much. Yeah, yeah, 20 to 25% per share every year for the next decades. Um, and we have done that consistently for the last two decades. And I don't want to just do it for two decades. I want to do it for at least four or five decades. Um, and I don't want to do that for money. I want to do it because there are hundreds of millions of pets that we're not helping. Uh, so for us to fulfill our mission, we need to get a lot bigger. Um, and having those multiple levers means that you can hire and attract great people, and sometimes they can stumble and fall, and it's okay. Um, everyone doesn't need to be you know, running perfectly at every moment. People will take a breath, they can get off the treadmill if they need to. Uh, life happens, right? Um, and so those new opportunities we have... Uh, which, which are the big ones? Which are the ones you're most excited about? Well, I mean, I mean we can go in reverse order. We're going to double the size of our addressable market by adding uh, going to Europe and Asia. So we're going to go from 25,000 vet hospital universe to 50,000 over a long period of time. Uh, our goal by the end of 2025 is to add 10,000 hospitals in our addressable market. Um, we've added uh, two new products, a low and a medium price product meant to be sold primarily online. It's not something a veterinarian would ever want to recommend because it doesn't cover as much. Um, but it does mean that when uh, some customers are more price sensitive, uh, that they could uh, buy another product from us. We're also looking at adding... Um, uh, pet food as a uh, potential uh, product extension uh, to help our pet owners, um, you know, budget and care for their pet. Uh, so those are kind of the, and then we've got some distribution channels as well. Yeah, and I think the pet uh, food one is intriguing because you've run tests that if um, if the pet is compliant with the food regime, then it leads to a healthier pet, which can feed through into a lower insurance price. Well. It's more of a hypothesis right now. Um, 
Have you guys read the book where that guy ate McDonald's every day for like two years or something? And like he grew a third head and a leg fell off and, <laughs> you know, a bunch of weird things. Um, the theory is similar. If you were to eat the same processed food over and over and over again, um, there's probably a better way. So we think that if you eat a high-quality food uh, in the right amount of calories, you're going to have a better health outcome. And most veterinarians would say, yeah, that's pretty obvious. But there's never been data to study it. Um, and uh, with monthly recurring revenue, monthly subscription food companies now and food being delivered to the house, now you're able to know what a pet is being fed. And if you know what they're being fed, you're going to be able to measure it. And if you're able to measure it, and a pet that eats one type of quality food is 23% healthier than the average pet, then we could give them a 23% discount on our insurance. And by giving a 23% discount on our insurance reinforces that you should buy that food because why would a crazy insurance company give you a discount unless it actually made your pet healthier? Um, so we think the two of them are connected and um, that we could get veterinarians to help us uh, share that <laughs> message. And the light is on. <laughs> One final question, then I'll uh, uh, turn over the microphone to the floor so they can, they can ask their questions as well. Um, you've said you plan to step down as CEO in 2025, so mm -hmm. the primary operational head of the company and will become chairman, which is more of a super, an, an involved position, but more of a supervisory one. Mm -hmm. And in 2035, uh, mm -hmm. so long-term planning, mm -hmm. you plan to step down as chairman. Mm -hmm. What is the rationale behind this plan? Um, Founder-led companies have a lot of benefits, um, but they have uh, a number of trappings. Um, okay. Well, first of all, a founder may not scale. Um, and, you know, I may not scale next year or the year after. So, you know, I've, I've got a board and if I don't, they chop my head off and I'll be gone. Um, but it is very difficult often for um, other strong voices in a company to have the impact uh, in a company if there is a founder that is around too long with too strong of a voice. Um, you know, starting last year, I have rarely showed up to a management meeting. And last year, we created more intrinsic value per share than we've ever done in the company's past. So, I mean, kind of, if I just look at the math, it says, Daryl, don't show up to work. <laughs> um, now, I, I, I think it's important that the values that we have and the culture and some other things remain instilled. And, you know, I've got a very deliberate plan to make sure that, you know, the team takes things and, and, and runs with it over a period of time. Um, so I just think it is the healthiest and the best thing to be able to attract the best talent um, you have to give room and uh, I mean um, 
you know, I've been reminded recently when people stay in power too long, what happens to them? Um, we, we're all watching it, and it's not healthy. Um, and uh, so I, I, think it's, I think it's just the right thing to do. Now, personally, I'll give you another reason um, that is really important to me is... Um, If this, if Trupanion requires me to be successful, then I failed. Absolutely, 100% failed. Um, uh, you know, you, you want your children to leave the house and carry on in their life and to do it on their own. And you want them to be better than you have ever been in your life. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, 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 there's no difference. Uh, I've seen that many times with founders that their, their ultimate dream is for the company to work without them being there for something that can, you know, outlive them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and if it runs into trouble, you can do like another one of your neighbors in Seattle, Howard Schultz, and uh, make it come back. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the way that... So my plan uh, was first announced in 2014. Uh, in 2014, I said when we would be cash flow positive, uh, uh, when we got to a certain stage, I said um, uh, when we would do a number of things. I said at that point, uh, I'm committed to be CEO if I'm capable until 2025. Uh, and then I will remain on the board if interested until 2035. This has been, this is not something new. This is something that we've been talking about and planning for a long time. And, um, you know, uh, the last year was great to see, uh, you know, the team, you know, that uh, they did really well without me being super hands-on. Yeah, you have an incredible team. I've had the privilege to meet many of them and uh, really an exceptional bunch of people. Okay, with that, uh, we have about 15 minutes left, so I want to give uh, you guys also the opportunity to, to ask a question. My two daughters, Amelie and Olivia, have microphones, so just uh, raise your hand and, um, and they'll, uh, they'll be happy, happy to pass you the microphone. And if you don't mind stating briefly your name uh, and where you're from, um, that would be great. Nice talk. Alex, you want yes, to go first? I'm Alex, I'm from the north of Italy. Thank you for having me, Rob. And Thank you for your presentation. I'm not a big specialist on your business, unfortunately, but I wanted to ask you about the inflation aspect that you mentioned before. So it seems to me that if the prices of the premiums goes up from 20 to 65, uh, basically, and the veterinary cost is increasing on par, you benefit from red in that your uh, margin on the single is going up. It's a larger amount of money. Isn't there an intrinsic limit to this? So Basically, you benefit from veterinary costs, but the pet ownership could be, become too expensive. So could that be a problem for you on the long term? Um, so uh, I've been hearing this question for over 20 years. Um, and um, the average rate of inflation for veterinary medicine has been 6% a year for us uh, every year. Um, 
Now, in one region, it might be going up 12% a year, and another one, it might be going up 1%, but on, on a blended basis, it's been going up about 6 If you think about, first of all, just as a reminder, currently 2% of pets are currently insured in North America. And we talked about an addressable market that we can get to 1 in 4, 25%. We are simply a cost-plus model. So imagine that veterinarians are charging so much that um, the costs of being, the affordability is so challenging. It is going to affect the three out of four pets who are not insured way before it's going to affect somebody that has it broken up into monthly budgetable ways. So, um, you know, we pay uh, for what a veterinarian charges. We don't tell them what to charge, but it is the same amount for an insured versus a non-insured client. So in your hypothetical model, let's say that they put it up 200% this year, 200% next year, 200% the year after, 200%, and at some point they broke the back of it, it would break the backs of the non-insured before the insured client. And in fact, the higher, the more that veterinarians increase their costs, when their costs are going up faster than people's disposable and discretionary income, it is actually increasing the demand or need for our product. Because our biggest, if we got to one in four, right now we're two out of a hundred, our biggest competitor is people self-insuring. It's people saying, I got this on my own. Hi, and thank you for being here. My name is Jan, and I'm from Switzerland. Um, my question is, at the moment, you're currently spending almost all of the adjusted operating income on pet acquisition costs mm -hmm. or yep. pet acquisition spending. And that makes totally sense, of course, as long as the internal rate of returns are high. But if you're looking into far further future, when you don't find enough um, for a high internal rate of return um, spending, what are the, the use of your adjusted operating income will look like? So what would you think? Is it like a, for other insurances using the flow to invest or things like that? I don't know. I might want a 15% dividend. I mean, if we ever got to the point that we said we got to 10 million pets enrolled and we decided, you know what? I don't want 10 million in one pets. Uh, I am confident that I could have a 10% profit margin. Um, and as, I mean, as an individual, I'm the single largest shareholder of the company. There's institutions that are bigger than I am. I wouldn't mind a 15% dividend. Uh, maybe after taxes, I'll be able to pay a, you know, a, a 10 or 11 or a 12% dividend. Um, but we could do that. Um, uh, you know, there's lots of things. I'm not sure I'm going to be alive when that happens, to be honest with you. I mean, we literally, we have, we have decades of runway. Um, you know, we have veterinary hospitals where 25% of their pets are insured just with Trupanion today. Uh, and the way that that works is, it's not that we go out to every pet in the vet hospital, 
It's what are all the new pets that come in, puppies and kittens that year, and one out of four end up enrolling with us. Um, and then you do that for 14 years in a row, and that one hospital is now fully penetrated. I mean, think of where we are today and how long that is going to, I mean, that's not going to happen in 20 years from now. Uh, maybe in 30, maybe in 40. Um, now, we are disciplined, or we try to be very disciplined in that uh, if we can't acquire pets to get a 30 to 40% internal rate of return, I'm not spending the money. So we may grow slower and be more profitable, and that would be disappointing. Um, but, you know, I'd be willing to do that. In the beginning of COVID, the first quarter of COVID, you know, we pulled back our spending dramatically and people were like, wow, look how profitable, they're so much more profitable now. I was like, yeah, we didn't enroll as many pets. So that's, you know, as long as we're getting the rates of return, we'll continue to do it. If we can't get the rates of return, then, you know, we can, you know, do dividends or do whatever else we want. Just over there. Um, hi, my name is uh, Rafael. I'm a Brazilian based in Germany. Um, my question to you is, um, how can you protect the business from some um, greedy veterinarians that might feel motivated to recommend surgeries that are more uh, beneficial to their pocket than really necessary for the pets? Um, so, you know, the, the question is, uh, how do we protect ourselves from uh, unethical vets? Um, and the first part of my answer is, I think, the most important part is very few veterinarians are unethical. Um, the average veterinarian makes less than 25% uh, of what a human doctor makes. And a human doctor makes less than a dentist makes. It's easier to get into dental school than it is to get into veterinary school. So if you're starting from a place of greed, you are messing with people's teeth, not their pets. Um, so the, the, the filtering system solves it largely. Now, it doesn't mean that there are no crooked vets. There are a few. But at the end of the day, we price down to the neighborhood. Like we're pricing, we know the, we're, we're tracking the average cost at a vet hospital level. So in the event an individual vet hospital was acting unethical and the average cost went up, uh, we would charge that the people they would be hurting are their clients on Trupanion at their hospital. And maybe they would end up canceling, maybe they'd go to our competitor, maybe they'd just stop doing pet insurance. But it ultimately wouldn't hurt us because we're a cost plus model. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of steps in between that. Um, but we're not trying... You know, we're just trying to understand what the average cost is and put a small margin on top of it. Um, and if we see somebody that's being unethical, um, you know, we can have a conversation with them. Um, and, 
you know, typically the first conversation solves it. Um, I mean, in North America, a veterinarian could lose their license if they were part of fraud. Uh, and, you know, so there's, there's a lot of mechanisms in it. But, I mean, if you play out, you know, one extreme, we would price for it and maybe we'd have a lower penetration rate at that hospital. On the other end, veterinarians are good human beings and it doesn't happen very often. And in between, there's conversations and monitoring. You know, with our software where we pay hospitals directly, um, we get access to the in invoices of both insured versus non-insured clients. So uh, we know what they're charging for non-insured clients versus an insured client. So it's, it's very easy for us to have triggers and flags to tell us if there's anything we need to look into. Okay, so we have time for one final question. Um, but Daryl is here the whole weekend, so feel free to, to continue the conversation with him uh, in the breaks and at dinner this evening. Hi. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Jonathan Tanner here from uh, London. Thanks, Rob, again for putting on this uh, beautiful event in this beautiful city. It's really great to, to have everybody together. And thanks, Daryl, for your insightful talk. Um, I had a question regarding the penetration. I know there's a huge uh, TAM, TAM there, but in the UK, something pet insurance is something like 25% penetration, even higher. Mm -hmm. I mean, they must love their pets more than... <laughs> People in the U.S., I'm not sure. I guess they have all these dog shows, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's not I true. Mean, yeah. in, in, uh, so it's about 28% of pets are insured in the U.K. Uh, but the U.K. started doing this in 1970. Um, okay. In Sweden, it's over 50%. Right. And they've started over 100 years ago. Um, so the biggest thing is really at time and doing it well. Yeah, so my question is also even in Australia, I think it's 6 or 7% or something like mm -hmm. that. You, yeah, so... Mm -hmm. What are the KPIs of your management team to sort of get that penetration higher um, is the first part of the question. And secondly, I'm just thinking about the competition. I know you're unique in what you do in pet insurance in the US, but are there other competitors in separate channels? Like uh, there's a few of these wellness animal hospitals which sell these wellness plans. Can you maybe talk about that uh, in terms of competing with separate channels? Um, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, so the KPIs that we have at the company um, are long, um, and I'll go over a bunch of them. But, uh, you know, for over 15 years, my board members receive a daily metrics report of today uh, about 42 daily KPIs. Um, and it doesn't just go to the board. It goes to every single employee in the company daily. Um, so they include the number of uh, leads or quotes we received in a day, um, our conversion rate, our conversion rate on the phone versus the web, the number of active hospitals and same-store sales, and the number of 30-day trials that were given out, the number of claims that came in the day, the how many were paid directly to the hospital, how many hospitals got our software, uh, retention rates, uh, uh, first-year retention, ongoing retention, uh, so there are many, many, many metrics. Um, most of the penetration rates that we're looking at is on a per hospital level. So you talked about 5%, 7%, 27%. When we, when we dig in, we're, we're tracking that down to a hospital level because um, that's where we can affect most of the change. Um, there are 
competitors both in North America and globally that do some things a lot better than we do or things that we don't even try to do. Um, sometimes because we don't think it's a great business model, sometimes we don't think it's solving the problem that we don't want, and other times we just haven't got around to it yet. We've been busy growing 20 plus percent